Well, hello, everyone. I am That Williams Guy here once again for an episode of the podcast. And joining me today is Mr. John Holshen. I first met John, I believe, at the 2014 Tactical Conference. And that seems to be a recurring theme of people on the show here lately because I met a lot of people in the industry for the first time at that event. Um, if I remember correctly, John presented something Force on Force related uh, as far as like uh, getting off the X, I believe, was the 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 basic premise of that that course and i took that block and uh, i gotta tell you folks john is one of the more studious people that i see in the the training community i notice him at other like training events TACCON. you'll see john show up at other instructors classes he just kind of stands over on the side he's got that coach thing going where he stands there and and, and does this over on the side he, he just takes it all in and, yeah, I'm frequently uh, taking notes also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he takes all that in, and uh, he's a constant, constant, consummate student as well as an instructor. And I do believe that is very important is if you're going to be teaching, you have to also be a frequent student. Uh, with that, John, if you would uh, introduce yourself and tell our audience about you. Well, um, gosh, been in this industry as a trainer for, uh, for a long time. It's uh, kind of hard to remember how many years now. Came from a military background, um, first in military intelligence and special operations. And uh, even there, though, most of my assignments uh, led me to looking at individual skills. I was part of a program that put together or part of a group of folks who put together a program that some people called the original loan operator course, where we were basically teaching folks who would be going into hazardous areas, um, how to how to stay safe, how to survive that. And what we found was after a few years, although we were training people to be aware of and, uh, and deal with potential terrorist actions and that sort of thing, what we found was that actually they were exposed far more often to just plain old criminality than anything else. So it was pretty much a short step from there to looking at that and modifying that for my own use when I was back home between deployments and then uh, to teach to private citizens. Okay. And uh, you were U.S. Army, correct? Correct. All right. And you did some time as a contractor after that, if I understand? Yeah. yeah. I uh, got in, in on the, uh, the contracting thing, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, first as uh, what people now call an operator, a uh, very often misused term in my mind, uh, and then as a, as a trainer and a manager of training programs um, through, uh, through about halfway through. Our, uh, our global war on terror. So uh, 2012, I guess, was 2013 was the last time that I actually uh, did any overseas work myself, but then continued in the training side of it for a few years after that. Okay. And you operate a range in just north of Seattle, correct? I do. West Coast Armory North. We're between Seattle and Everett, Washington. I only half jokingly tell people I had to buy a gun store to get a gun range so I could do what I really <laughs> like to do, uh, which is teach. All right. And tell everybody about your business there. Well, we are a full service uh, gun store. We uh, also have uh, an indoor range with three public bays and a training bay, uh, which allows our, our members to come in and shoot uh, while we're running classes simultaneously. And the training bay is a tactical bay we can move throughout. So that allows us to work on some of those more advanced skills. I tell folks I'd always rather shoot outside if I could, but in the Pacific Northwest, a good part of the year, uh, it's pretty wet out there. So having an indoor range is pretty nice. 
Yes, I've actually been a, a visitor to that ranch, and it's, it That's is very right. nice. Very nice. Um, yeah, just, we we just concluded a, uh, a remodel of our two of our bays, brought them back or brought them up to the same standard as the, the more recent public bay that we put in uh, just a few years ago with all brand new action target booths and target retrievers and all that fun stuff. All right. Uh, what kind of classes do you offer there? You know, honestly, the vast majority of training I do is for absolute beginners. Um, the fact of the matter is that there is so much demand for that, particularly over the last two years. Virtually everything I put on the schedule fills, and uh, it's difficult to to find time on the calendar for the more advanced classes. And frankly, there aren't very many folks out there, percentage-wise, that are really interested in a deep dive. Most folks just want the basic safety, and you know, we try and, and sneak in there. Uh, enough awareness of what they to give them an understanding of what they do and don't know and hopes that they'll seek out further training but we do an awful lot of, of absolutely beginner level firearms training well, you know as i know what caliber of trainer that you are and it's just i sit here and think about how jealous i am of people who come in they're, they're going to get their initial firearms training and they get it from john olshin you know basically <laughs> teaching that this is where the bullet comes out of class uh knowing that all the things that you could be teaching them that if they were to come back and uh, man, I wish I had you local <laughs> so, that I, so that I could be in there every week. Uh, yeah. We, we stay pretty busy. We've trained uh, about uh, we're at about 1200 people so far this year and wow. about 1800 people last year. So it, uh, it keeps us hopping. Yeah. I can imagine. Uh, that's a pretty good size urban area. I think to, to, to keep, keep a steady customer base coming in exactly and uh you know it's just nice we see you know the the interest in firearms rate of firearm sales has probably at least tripled and it's uh -huh. nice to see that uh, you know, maybe a quarter of those people at least are willing to spend some time getting some training all right is that mostly first-time buyers yeah, well, it's, it's, it's across the board, but yeah, you've got a lot of folks that will tell you they never considered owning a firearm before and never thought that they never saw themselves as owning a firearm. And it's interesting in class. Sometimes we get folks that will tell us that they are absolutely the opposite political uh, leanings and thought from uh, what we typically consider as, as the average gun owner. And, uh, but their move to have a firearm in their home for one reason or another right now. Yeah, it's it's uh, when you start when it's not on the news, it's outside your your living room window. It certainly takes on a uh, a different frame of reference. Absolutely, yeah, a whole different level of of uh, importance. All right. Well, our topic today is going to be individual tactics. So, John, why don't you first define for our audience what an, what is or what are individual tactics? Absolutely. And I'll, I'll preface, if I may, with a, this is a topic that is really near and dear to my heart. This is something that, you know, if I, if I refer to my, my special forces background, I can tell you that the average special forces soldier is not an extraordinary marksman. They're not an extraordinary shot. They're, they're adequate. They are certainly competent. Now, my idea of adequate and competent might be a bit higher than some folks, uh, but that's really where they are. But for only being adequate and competent, they very, very seldom, very rarely lose a fight. Why? 
because of the mindset and the tactics. And that's, you know, most people who have been in bad places, when they really get down to it, will tell you that that's, those pieces are much more important than the pure mechanics. Yet it's, it's unfortunate, it's difficult to explain that to folks. We might talk more about that later. But sure. tactics, what are we talking about? Well, I define tactics. Well, Merriam-Webster defines tactics. I'll paraphrase slightly. It is a skillful means uh, to accomplish an end or the use of all available assets to accomplish that end. Um, I look at it from the point of view of self-defense as what are the factors that I can manipulate to gain every possible advantage while denying my opponent uh, any possible advantage. Okay. Could you elaborate on that? Well, yeah. So I break it down. I first talk in terms of, of tactical geometry. We need to understand uh, about spatial relationships. Um, and sometimes you're, you're in a, a place where there are, are a lot of angles, a lot of structure and things like that. Other times not. Uh, but it comes down to geometry and physics at that level. Um, so first we, we teach geometry. Then we add kind of a mental framework for tactics, help people understand how they might use it. Another kind of analogy I use there, it's like a foreign language. You have to have vocabulary before you can do anything. But once you have vocabulary, uh, eventually you get enough vocabulary that someone can ask you unexpected questions and you can still formulate responses to those. Uh, but it takes vocabulary to do it. So that tactical geometry is the beginning of that, of that uh, vocabulary. We move from there into a framework of thinking about tactics. How can we move through situations in a timely fashion and choose what tactics to apply? Uh, we can move from there into pre-planned responses for predictable events. And then eventually we need to look at what happens when you're, when you're surprised. Um, you know, you may be surprised, but in fact, many of those surprising events are actually predictable in nature. You, you know, you can think about some of the things you might need to prepare for. So that, that's pretty much the, the structure as the kind of the overview of it for me. All right. Could you explain to us what uh, you mean by the, the geometry? Yeah, tactical geometry. So we want to look at uh, doorways, thresholds, thresholds first, threshold versus a doorway. A threshold would be a, a, a doorway without a door in it, right? So we got thresholds, we got doorways, we got hallways, we've got corners. Um, when we're looking into a room, we have dead space. We define that as areas we can't see from outside the room. Uh, we've got uh, follow-on and adjacent rooms. A master bedroom may have a bathroom off, but a walk-in closet. Um, how do we deal with all of those things? Um, stairwells, another, another aspect, something to think about. Each one of those, there's geometry that if you understand it, there are more favorable places to be and less favorable places to be. Um, we need to, to learn about that and be able to recognize that and position ourselves accordingly. All right. Can you give a practical example? Um, yeah. You know, as we, <laughs> you know, one of the issues here is kind of where tactics came from. And for the most part in the civilian world, what happened was people skilled and knowledgeable about team tactics started trying to apply tactics to the individual setting. And many of them tried to stay really close to and true to what they were doing as a team. And of course, that just, that's, that's plain silly. That won't work. Uh, if I'm making a room entry with three other guys and uh, I've got four sets of eyeballs and four muzzles going in the room, we're going to divide that room up. We each have our sector. I can get in there quickly, analyze my sector because it's small and react appropriately to it. 
Uh, as an individual, however, if you go rushing in the room, I don't care if you didn't even have to go through the door. If you had a Star Trek transporter and it just wow. transported you magically into the room, you could never process it as quickly, see what you need to see as a bad guy could that's waiting in there who has a much lower threshold uh, before using deadly force against you. So we need to understand how we can use that geometry to see as much as we can while minimizing our exposure to the bad guy's detection first and his projection of force second. Um, it's one of those things that's a lot easier to, to diagram and demonstrate than it is just to talk about. Uh, boy, I've had some fun on the internet trying to explain <laughs> so explain how you can look around a corner and sometimes shoot someone who can't even see you. And, uh, and if you've identified them properly as the threat, per perhaps you saw they were the threat, they identified themselves before they ducked around the corner. Now I can go back around that corner, find them in some cases, engage them while literally being invisible to them. And, uh, and people who haven't seen it will tell you that's absolutely impossible. If you can see him, he can see you. It's like, well, if I look him eye to eye, we can, but I don't need to see his eyeball. All I need to see is enough to shoot. And, uh, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where we go there. When we teach that, I actually start teaching it not even no, no guns in hand, dummy gun or anything else. Let's just walk through. Let's just look at this. Let's just examine the geometry as if you were a, uh, you know, an architect or an engineer or the guy building the house looking for square corners and, and that sort of inspecting that house. As a matter of fact, one of the best tacticians that I, I saw in that aspect was a guy with no military or law enforcement background. But what he did for a living was inspect new construction of uh, large projects for the government and, and other folks. And he understood those spatial awarenesses and, and space accountability just almost instinctively from doing that for such a long time. So anyway, I teach it first with no gun in hand at all. Uh, then I'll have folks go with a, through with a dummy gun in their hand, but there's not really anything to find. I just want them to look in each possible corner and see every possible part of the room that's large enough that someone could hide in with the least exposure. Then I'll put paper targets in there and have them move through that and do the same thing. Ultimately, or, or next, we'll have them go through that same setting with Airsoft and engage those targets. And eventually, yes, we'd like to do it in a live fire setting. Do you really learn that much? more in a live fire setting, particularly as a solo operator? No, I, I don't think so. But people need to experience it to get over the novelty of it and, uh, and, and kind of develop that confidence. And by live fire, he means simunitions, people. <laughs> uh, well, in uh, if, if I've got yeah. a ballistic shoot house, we'll go through and we'll do it okay. with actual, actual okay. yeah. All right. Um And you also mentioned physics in that. How does physics come into play? Physics come into play more when you don't have structure. This is more now we're, we're looking at the moving aspect of it. Uh, I tell people I'm going to teach them to, uh, to bend light and stop time. And they look at me very puzzled. And what are we talking about bending light? Well, seeing things that, that can't see you. So in effect, seeing around corners, stopping time has to do with movement. If you're moving toward me at the same rate, I'm moving away from you. And we've, we've effectively fixed that distance. Uh, conversely, if I'm moving forward at an angle, and if you're responding to me, but I continue to change at that same angle, we might create kind of a spiral effect that'll, that causes you to constantly have to reorient on me to engage me. 
but allows me to fix my body uh, along the line, the radius of that angle, so that I can maintain, basically, I can make myself a moving target to my threat while making the threat basically a stationary target to me. Uh, that's, that's a little piece of the physics of it. Uh, and that's really important in a, in a setting. You're in a parking lot, you're in a uh, gas station where you're not going to get to cover and short of a few steps, yet you're already under threat. Yeah, parking lots tend to be the the more dangerous places, I think, that people go, especially at gas stations and grocery stores, because it doesn't matter what walk of life you are or where you live, such as like you live in a high-end gated subdivision, you still got to stop and get gas. Yeah, you, you still got to go to the grocery store. That's where they all tend, yeah. tend to get together. Uh, I know we had a conversation this past week, uh, when we were at a, a class we'll talk about later, yeah. Um you know, I have very strict rules about which gas stations I stop at. Ah, you know, how do you discern? How do you discern a good gas station to stop at? Well, for one, uh, I stop when I want to get gas, not when I have to get gas. Absolutely. And so I can that plan. You mm-hmm. I, I, I plan that into you know, like I'm going to start making a stop when I want to do it, where I'm controlling whether or not I have to actually stop at that location. Um, I will not stop at a gas station when there's a crowd assembled in the parking lot. Absolutely. If there are people in the parking lot with absolutely nothing to do, I'll watch. If they're not walking back and forth directly from a car into the gas station, from the station back to a car, if they're just milling around a parking lot, that is a no go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that that's, uh, I, I was coming across Northern Louisiana on I 20 one time and was like, all right, it's about time for me to stop and do my gas thing. Mm-hmm. And so I start watching the signs for the gas prices. And mm-hmm. I, I see one for a price that's lower than, you know, what I've been seeing. Oh, well, that's where I need to get off. And I, and I get mm-hmm. off the, the interstate, go down the exit ramp, make my right turn, pull into the, to the gas station parking lot, circle through the parking lot, back out onto the frontage road, back out up onto the on-ramp. And, don't, and I went two exits down and paid more gas. Absolutely. Why? Because there were people in the parking lot milling about with nothing to do. Because yeah. you may very well become there's something to do. To do. Absolutely. I was in, uh, flew into Dayton, Ohio, not long ago. Oh. and had a very similar experience. I, I passed by several gas stations. And, uh, and for just that reason, uh, folks milling around, standing around that, um, yeah, they, they weren't conducting any normal business there. So what is their business? And I certainly don't want to become part of their business. Uh, I also look for how well maintained the grounds are uh-huh. and, and the store itself. If their lights burn out, if the trash cans are, are overflowing like that, because that shows me how attentive the staff is mm-hmm. um, and just you know, how much attention is being paid to the exterior of the building, much less the interior of the building. And, you know, that that's to me is if there's attention being paid to the exterior of the building, people aren't willing to hang around the exterior where they're another constantly being watched. Sure. Yep. And of course, all this falls into, you know, something that we may call it different things, but part of our my strategies for personal defense, awareness, right. avoidance, de-escalation, right. and disengagement. And uh, your awareness allows you to exercise avoidance uh, before you even have an encounter. And obviously, that's the, the best way to win any encounter. 
you know, it is amazing how many people that I talk to that, that I know their backgrounds, I know the level of, let's just, for lack of a better word, combat that they've seen, mm-hmm. be, it, be it law enforcement, be it military, be it whatever. And they all talk about that avoiding fights. You know, I uh, was on a radio show several years ago now, and uh, we were talking about home defense factors. And I was talking about just that, various methods of, of avoidance, even within my home. And one of the callers called in, and he was he was quite irate, sounded like a little bit of an older gentleman, maybe about my age now. And uh, he, he, uh, he basically called me every kind of word that you could say on the radio in terms of a, a coward. And, uh, and he said, you know, uh, he said, do you have kids? I said, yeah, yeah, I have kids. He goes, well, your, your kids, you know, they're, you're just going to hunker down in your, in your room and let somebody rob you downstairs. I, I told him I wasn't going downstairs. If I knew there were bad guys down there, I was going to assemble my family members in the most appropriate place and call 911 and uh, mm-hmm. issue commands to uh, them not to come up the stairs and so on. And he said, you know, your kids are going to be so traumatized. You're supposed to be the man of the house, protector of the house. You're, you need to get down there and, and take care of business. And he goes, uh, and it, basically I said, look, I'm a, I'm a combat veteran, Green Beret. I have several black belts. I have several national titles as a, that indicate that I know something about shooting and fighting. And what I know is all I got to do is get unlucky once. All I've got to do is uh, I go downstairs. My downstairs is basically a circle. Um, there's no guarantee. What about the guy waiting outside that sees me sneaking up on his on his brother inside and shoots me through the glass? The bottom line is there's nothing down there worth my life. And as far as, you know, my kids being traumatized, I said, you know, so my kids aren't going to be traumatized if I go down there and I end up having to shoot somebody. There's seven liters of blood in the carpet and in the furniture and there's brains all over the wall. Uh, you got to strip the carpet down to the bare floor and that's not going to be traumatic. Um, there's, there's no wonderful outcome to this situation, but it isn't going to get better because I go down there and shoot somebody in my living room. It's just, it isn't going to be a better outcome. Yeah. I had a similar experience teaching a, what I call my stand your ground lecture, which is Mm -hmm. basically a legal lecture that I do at a gun store in Metro Atlanta. And, you know, one of the students presented the scenario of, you know, you're in a two-story house or you're in a bedroom that's down a hallway and there's somebody you can hear them in your house and I will take up a position, dial 911, and, you know, if you feel the need, announce. I've called 911, whatever. And he says, well, what happens then? I said, well, hopefully they run out of your house. He said, but they might leave with some of my stuff. I said, well, that's better than you getting killed over the, st- <laughs> <laughs> the stuff. You know, I tell folks everybody gets to make their own decision, but my decision right. is there's nothing in my house worth killing somebody over right? other than my people. Right. Um, Start up the stairs after I've announced that, you know, in a Mm -hmm. loud voice that uh, don't approach the stairs. I will shoot you. Don't make me shoot you. Do not Mm -hmm. approach the stairs. You start up the stairs. There's going to be a bunch of loud noises uh, that are going to culminate in in a certain outcome. Um, Short of that, there's nothing down there worth me killing. They piss me off. But you know what? When I know as a private citizen, anybody, I don't care who you are. Um, if you got to shoot somebody today, tomorrow is not going to be a better day than today. Well, 
it's almost guaranteed to be a worse day. You're going to have all the same issues, whether those issues be financial, whether those issues be relationships, whether those issues be work related, and you're going to have a whole passel of new problems as well. It just didn't uh, work uh, to me. Now everybody gets to make their own decision. And yeah. Live. You know, and, and in every such scenario, people always envision themselves as being the winner. They never take into account that they very well may lose. Well, and you're absolutely right. And then I try and also talk about what if you're the what if you are the winner? I don't know about in your area, but in my area, what prosecutors that I've worked with tell me is unless that guy's wanted for some other crime, if he has not hurt physically hurt anyone, he's back on the street in less than 72 hours. He's not even in jail 72 hours later. And whether he shows up for court or not, well, who knows? Um, so even being the winner, you are very likely to not get the justice that you know you deserve. So now you put yourself at what degree of risk as a private citizen to hold that person till law enforcement gets there because he was in your house. Now I get it. It really, really irritates me. And I wish, you know, if we, if we lived a hundred years ago in a simpler time, <laughs> uh, what I would like to do would be possible and uh, we'd have a very different outcome, but we don't live in that time. And the reality of it is, is far different. All right. Well, I think that leads us into our next uh, area of discussion. Let's talk about a framework for all of this. Yeah, mental framework. So if we go back to the definition of tactics, that uh, skillful use of available assets uh, to achieve an end, well, what do we mean when we say an end? Well, in a in military setting, I tend to use those structures because I lived with them for so many years, but they're, they're really pretty useful for this. We're talking about an objective. We're talking about a desirable outcome. What do we want that outcome to be? And I find a lot of folks really have not considered that. In the military, we'd call it a mission statement. That mission statement would, would very precisely define the desired end state. And I find that a lot of folks are reacting when I put them in scenario-based training or I talk to them about incidents they've actually been in, they reacted from some emotional level. And when we examine it in, uh, you know, a few days later in, in the more leisure and with less passion involved, you know, you can see them. And sometimes they'll even say, gosh, I don't know why I did that. And so when we start talking tactics, I think we have to start with the mission statement. What are you trying to accomplish? If you don't know where you want to go, it's pretty hard to, to uh, plot a route to get there efficiently, right? So I encourage people to do that. And in order to do that, you know, I'll, well, I'll offer up my, my mission statement. What's my personal mission statement? My personal mission statement in any civilian potential deadly force situation is, I want to come out the other end of that situation, come out the other side of this with the minimum negative impact on me and mine. That's my mission statement. Come out the other side of this with the minimum negative impact on me and mine. Now, some people may, geez, John's pretty damn cold hearted. He ain't helping anybody. If you ain't blood, he, you're just shit out of luck. Well, not exactly. I got to live with myself tomorrow. I got to be able to look in the mirror. And there are certainly some situations with strangers that I, I couldn't sit by and just observe without inserting myself and live with myself tomorrow. What might those be? Well, it might involve a child, for example, someone truly innocent and incapable of defending themselves. But I ask people to, in advance, to examine this and think about it. Is all life of value? Absolutely all human life is of value. Is it of equal value? Frankly, not to me. It, it really isn't. Uh, you know, a, a situation or a way to look at this, I ask people to consider is, uh, 
let's say there's some place that you frequent um, on, a, on a daily or nearly daily basis. For me, it's a coffee shop. So I know, quote, the baristas. What's that mean? Well, I know their name. We share chit chat. We share, you know, uh, comments about the weather and sports teams and things like that. Well, hypothetically, if I went in there one morning and it was just me and the barista and I see they've got tears, you know, they're kind of trying to hide the fact they've got tears coming down their face. And I might be moved to ask them, you know, are you okay? What's, what's the matter? And they might tell me, well, no, I, I found out I have this medical condition. I have this, this medical problem and uh, I don't have any insurance and it's very expensive. I, I, I'm looking at 40 or $50,000 in medical bills and I don't know where I'm going to get it. And I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, I would feel empathy for that person. I, I certainly care. Am I on the way to the bank to make a withdrawal of 40 or $50,000? Even if I have that in expendable cash in the bank, the answer is still no. Well, why not? Well, because I have other people in my life that I have a greater responsibility to. I owe a responsibility to be able to care for them. If I tried to care for everybody in the world who might need that money, I couldn't accomplish anything. Now, that doesn't mean that I might not take some action. I might try and, you know, GoFundMe's are a thing now. Uh -huh. Might help them with that. I might put them in touch with an organization that I know may help them. I may be aware of a faith base or some other organization that might be helpful, but I'm not personally going to go to the bank and finance that person's medical situation. Now, if we change that up a little bit and in scenario-based training, I put people in that same barista, excuse me, in that same coffee shop and somebody comes in with a, with a gun and is gonna rob that barista, it amazes me how many of my students will immediately want to employ the firearm to, to take action. And I ask them, are, are you aware of what you're putting at risk? What about the people that you owe a greater responsibility to? What if you die here today? What about your kids? What about your spouse? What about your other responsibilities in life? Is it really appropriate for you to put it all on the line for the barista at the coffee shop? And actually not even for the barista at the coffee shop. We're not talking about somebody that's actively killing her. We're talking about somebody that's robbing the place. It's not her money. It's, it's the business's money and it's probably insured but we're going to grab a gun and insert ourselves in that situation. So, so I ask people to really consider that in advance. Now I'm not telling you, you can't do that. Everybody, uh, what I'm really strongly suggesting is that people think about this type of thing in advance and think about what their mission statement is. What's your objective? One of my instructors, when I asked him what his mission statement was, he very quickly and unhesitantly said, to quickly react to limit the damage or injury to myself and other innocents. I said, okay, that's, that's, that's reasonable. That's your mission statement. Now, do you think his mission statement and my mission statement are always gonna lead to the same actions? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. To immediately react and limit injury to other people in the environment, maybe. Um, so anyway, so, so framework, mental framework, it's got to start with mission statement. If you don't know the mission statement, your mission statement, how do you plot the course? How do you figure out what tactics are appropriate to use? Tactical geometry, we give you the tools, right? We give you the vocabulary. Now we start needing to have the framework of how are we going to apply this? Is it more important that I get in there quickly or is it more important that I get in there with minimum exposure to myself? 
Well, in some cases, it might be the former. In some cases, it might be the latter. Uh, but I need to think about that in advance and understand what I really want to do. You know, I was listening to your example there of the, the medical problem. Yeah, and you quoted that forty to $50,000 figure. Sure. Um, a couple of years ago, I polled some of the criminal defense attorneys in my, my area. It's like, say someone is involved in a legit self-defense shooting, but it has started down the court system pathway. You know, how much dollar amount are they looking at spending sure. to, head, to head this off from a criminal prosecution? Exactly. Now, that's important to head yeah. it off from a criminal prosecution. Right. What was the figure that they gave you? Uh, from right up until the point of keeping it from, you know, we're, we're, we're managing the whole process up through, like, it's going to a grand jury and we're hoping that there's not going to be an indictment. Mm-hmm. We haven't gotten a trial. Right. Say, they, say they can successfully uh, handle uh, the case. Prior to trial. Exactly. Yeah, w- without it going to a trial, mm-hmm. it was about $30,000. That's exactly the same out here. Twenty to forty thousand dollars is what you can expect to spend to try and not end up before a jury. And now, right. and that is, and many attorneys are going to have you pay that up front and right there in the contract they're going to give you. I do some expert witness work, and I've asked mm-hmm. them to show me these documents, and I've seen examples of the contract. And right there in the contract, it says this is the amount prior to, and we will negotiate an appropriate. Uh, figure should this end up in a trial? People don't realize that. Yeah. We had a case out here in Washington state. I don't know if it's unique or not, but Washington state has a, uh, has a law that if you are charged with a wrongful use of force and you are found not guilty by reason of self-defense, you can petition the state to reimburse you your defense costs. And so there was a case a couple of years ago where um, the first was a mistrial. They tried him again. And partway through the second prosecution, the prosecutor dropped the charges. And uh, the, the, uh, the defendant said, well, you know, the only reason he dropped the charges is because he doesn't want to have to pay. He knows that I'm going to win. So he brought suit against the the uh, the the government entity um, to recover his costs. So that became a matter of public record. And I have oh. I looked at that case for a couple of reasons. There's some interesting things in there if you, if you do expert witness work as well. But he, two trials now, so we can cut it in half, but he documented over $600,000 in legal expenses between those wow. two trials. So $300,000 per trial. Uh, in legal expenses was what he spent to not go to jail. Now, that was his criminal defense. Uh, Then there was, of course, a civil suit, and they settled for an undisclosed amount um, in civil suit. But I I know it was in the six figures. Wow. No, seven millions. (laughs) Um, You know, but your example gave me an easy way to present this to people. If you wouldn't run to the bank and withdraw $30,000 to give to someone to go spend on their medical bills, why would you put yourself in a situation where you're going to have to drop 30,000, 30 grand on your own legal defense for this other person? Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly my, my point to that. And now again, if it's truly life or death, if it's truly someone who is 
is is in fact truly innocent. And that's a that's another thing. As a law enforcement <laughs> officer, uh, you know, I've I've had many law enforcement officers tell me that they don't deal with innocent people all that often. Um, in fact, they they usually have contributed to the event in some way. But even if that but if that person is truly innocent, you know, the example I use is a child. You know, am I going to be able to stand there and watch someone actually harm a child physically significantly? No, I'm not. I'm going to, I'm going to have to, because I have to live with myself tomorrow. Um, but you know what? Those are the things that, again, if we, we want to think about them now, we need to think about them now when we can do so, hopefully dispassionately uh, at our leisure and chew on it and think about the pros and cons. You don't want to be trying to figure all that out in the heat of the moment when you're faced with it and you're, you're trying to think of it for the first time or worse yet, you don't even consider it. You just act. And out of a moment of passion, and then you find yourself somewhere you did not want to be. Uh, so again, you, what are your desired outcomes? What's your mission statement? So that leads to the next obvious that question then, <laughs> framework for decision-making. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so one of the ways I look at that is I, I try and break that down pretty mechanical to start with. And an example I use, an analogy is, is static line parachuting. That's the kind of parachuting we do in the military. So what you have is you've got a parachute on your back. You've got a, a static line that is attached to the aircraft. It's attached to the parachute. When you exit, you come to the end of that line, it pulls your parachute out for you. So as I'm heading toward the door, and I've done that a whole bunch of times, as you're heading toward the door, what are you thinking? There's things that could go wrong here. Now, how do I sort through them? It's, it's, here's kind of a funny thing that uh, in every airborne school, when they talk about malfunctions and, and uh, immediate action, call it different things, but that's what it is, immediate action for malfunctions. Someone inevitably asked the big airborne sergeant in the black hat, uh, sergeant, how long do I have to do all that? If, if my parachute doesn't open, how long do I have to accomplish all those things that you just told me I have to do? And he looks at you very solemnly and he says, don't worry, airborne. You have the rest of your life to accomplish those objectives. Right? You have the rest of your life to solve that problem. Now, obviously, how long the rest of your life is may be directly dependent upon how quickly you solve that problem. Um, so how do we streamline that process is the question. So I'm heading toward the door. Best case scenario, there's a certain set of stimuli that I expect to have happen. I expect to see and feel certain things. There's only two really critical bad branches that can go on here. One is I fall free of the aircraft with no, no effective parachute over my head. So there's certain stimuli that, may, that I'll experience. The second is that I'm hung up. I'm what's called a toe jumper. That, that line does not come free. So as I exit the aircraft, I'm either... I'm, I'm looking and hoping and feeling for this kind of tug feeling and then this slow down, this deceleration feeling. Uh, but if instead what I feel is a big jerk and then I'm getting beat up, I'm just getting hammered. Well, that tells me I'm getting smashed against the side of the plane. There's only one answer for that. So I'm getting, I feel myself getting smashed against the side of the, the, the plane. There's certain posture I need to get in to protect myself and keep my parachute from deploying at that point because I don't want to get ripped in half. 
All right. The other is I exit and I don't get that opening shock and I, I don't have a good parachute over my head. There's only one thing I need to do there. Now, why is this relevant? Where am I going with this? <laughs> you might say, well, we're trying to streamline our process here. And some people are, are familiar with the, uh, the Boyd action cycle, observe, orient, decide, act. Some people look at it different ways. But what I am doing is I am preloading. This is the stimuli I'm looking for. If I get stimuli A, it's all good. Just keep doing what you're doing. If, however, I get stimulus B, I don't have to think about, I don't have to decide. I skip that decision point because I already know what to do. I'm going to go directly from stimulus to action. And the other branch is, is similar, directly from stimulus to action. So how do we use this in a self-defense situation? Let's say you're in a, in a place where you see someone that is a potential threat or a, just simply a person of interest and you can't leave. Maybe, uh, maybe your significant other is in using, the, using the, the, the restroom or is in a dressing room in a, in, a, in a big store. There's some reason you can't just assemble and, and get out of here. You got to stick around. Maybe, you're, uh, maybe you've taken on a, uh, a security role, maybe in your church, in your house of worship. Uh, we've seen a bunch of videos of things like this. So now you're watching this person of interest. Well, there's a three-step process that I teach to people, and that is position, prepare, perform. Position. I need to get to a place where I can see what I need to see and do what I need to do. So I need to see what I need to see. I need to be able to see the stimuli that tell me which way to go. Am I a toe jumper? Am I, am I free falling when I shouldn't be? And that's pretty straightforward because if this person is a potential threat, well, he's either going to do nothing, right? Hey, all's good. The parachute's opening. Or he's going to become assaultive. Well, if he becomes assaultive, what are the two branches there? Deadly, non-deadly. Well, what's deadly and not deadly look like? Well, I, I go to the worst case first always. Deadly looks like he probably has a deadly weapon in his hand. He has a knife, a club, a gun in his hand. What's my course of action? I can, I've just pre-plotted that whole path. If that guy goes deadly assaulted, he produces a deadly weapon and begins to use it against people, this is what I'm doing. Conversely, he may become a threat, but it is a non-deadly threat. What's that look like? Well, he might become assaultive, but there's nothing deadly in his hands and he's not using his hands in a, in a deadly fashion. Well, then what am I going to do? So now I've got two branches. I have positioned myself to see what I need to see and do what I need to do. If I don't have any, any uh, projectile weapons, I may, to be, may, may need to be close to him. If I have things that can project force, well, I don't need or want to be very close to him, just close enough to him. So position prepare. Well, I just gave you the preparation. I have thought through what are the two branches? What are the, what are the specific triggers in those branches? And starting with the worst case, I have prepared. If I'm standing security in my, in my church and someone's a person of interest, and now he, he gets up and he approaches someone and he has just produced a firearm. It's pretty straightforward. I need to be getting mine out. By the time I can get it out, people, I'd shoot him. Well, actually, you're a couple seconds probably from being able to shoot it. Where's your gun? It's in a holster. You got to draw it. You got to bring it to bear. While doing that, you're continuing to gather information. No, he did not produce a badge and, and identify himself and, and start to take somebody in custody. He's actually beginning uh, hostile actions that are likely to kill somebody. Well, it's clear by that time I figured that out. My sights are coming on target. I'm pressing through my trigger press. I'm delivering what I need to deliver. 
in terms of deadly force. So position, prepare, perform. Because we have positioned and prepared, we move directly to performance. There is no decision. I've preloaded that decision. What we find is if you haven't done that, you exhibit a very commonly documented two to four seconds of basically between the, the uh, discernment of the stimulus and you doing anything useful. Most people have a two to four second lag time between the time that that stimulus, you watch it on video and you go, well, right then it was clear what he was going to do. But there's a two to four second lag before the person, the defender responds. So that framework, position, prepare, perform, I have, have demonstrated myself and demonstrated with other people through scenario-based training, can prepare them to shortcut all of that and apply the appropriate response in a much more timely fashion. Yeah. Um, I think you used earlier when we were discussing before we went started recording that there are predictable events and then there are unexpected but predictable events. Sure. Yeah. So uh, an example of that. And well, so what we're trying to do, can I be surprised and startled? Absolutely. I can be surprised yeah. and startled. Now, from a physical perspective, physical combat, I can tell you that it is possible to turn your startle response into a response that is, in fact, protective and possibly even counter assaultive. Um, that takes a, a bunch of training in order to do that. But first, in where it starts is, of course, the ability to do it mentally. Um, anybody who is trained with a, with a handgun very much, hopefully, has trained malfunction drills, right? And it doesn't really take that long for most people to get to the point where if you're shooting a string of fire and you, you, have, you experience the stimulus of a click when you expect a bang, that you immediately apply the appropriate, what we call, immediate action, tap rack. Is, is mine. It might be different for other people. But the point is, did you know that was going to happen? No. Often, you know, I've experienced this in situations where I had absolutely no idea it was going to happen. Yet I have done all the things that I trained to do, which includes displacing. I've, I've moved while solving the malfunction and getting back in the drill. We can all achieve that in, the, in that narrow setting. So that's an example of something that was unexpected, but it was predictable. What other situations might be? Well, I, again, I always start with worst case situations. What if you unexpectedly come under, under fire? You unexpectedly are the target of gunfire. Well, first we need to think about, we need to understand what might that look like and sound like? How, what will our senses detect? How will I know that I'm under fire? Uh, most people think it's the sound of a gunshot. It may be. It may actually be something near you being struck by the bullet. It may actually be the, the first and, and most uh, obvious uh, stimulus that you receive. And it may take you a, a moment to discern what that is, particularly if you've never experienced it before. I can definitely remember going, huh? Oh, that's the, I know what that is. I should be doing something. But that's what we want to do in advance is we want to, <laughs> I think you may have had a similar experience. Would you care to share I, that? I, I will say that it sounds different when the sound is coming towards you than when the sound is going away from you. It does. It does. 
So the point is, so what is our response? What is our plan response? My plan response is if I'm not already in the best place to be, get moving, get moving. I'm at least a moving target. Hopefully I'm moving toward a better place. So kind of, here's a, a humorous story uh, on, on myself. Uh, once, upon a, once upon a time, a long time ago, I, uh, I spent some time in a place where it wasn't uncommon to be on the receiving end of, of mortar or a rocket fire. So what we call indirect fire coming in on you. And it doesn't take very long to figure out that you don't want to be standing in the open when that happens. You want to get some cover, get down on the ground, get behind the nearest things. Well, at the end of that mission, we got on a helicopter and we flew to a U.S. Navy ship that was already in port in a nearby friendly port. And we slept for a good bit of time because we hadn't been doing a lot of that. Get up the next day and it's kind of late afternoon and we meet out on a little little flight deck and we're standing around talking. There's a bunch of sailors standing around talking when all of a sudden there is a kaboom. And the next thing I know, I am on the ground behind the nearest piece of apparatus that happened to be alongside the flight deck and looking around. And there's my three teammates that were with me are all on the ground behind various pieces of apparatus. And as we look around, we see all these sailors standing there looking at us with this very puzzled look on their face, like what in the world is wrong with these guys? And then we hear music begin to play, and it evidently is the national anthem of the host country. And they're firing the cannon prior to bringing the flag down, which is something they do every afternoon. Um, now, all those sailors thought that we were, hey, you could put a spin on it. Geez, those guys are jumpy. Man, those guys are flat out cowards. As soon as there was an explosion, man, they were just hiding and, and groveling. Yeah, we were, <laughs> because when you're taking income and mortar fire, there's not a damn thing I can do about it other than, than get cover and survive it. So, you know, obviously time and place specific, but I think it's a really good reflex that if you're taking income and fire or whatever short, unless you're already in the very best place to be, I should be moving. So that stimulus is built in just like that click when I expect a bang when I'm shooting is built in to get my feet moving unless I'm already in the best place and solve the problem that I, that I have. Um, so I think that's, you know, we need to think about what are those kind of situations. Um, somebody appears in your face uh, that's, that's very irate. I'd like to have preloaded certain responses to that. Well, something that's really important, I think, in that is breaking tunnel vision and looking around and seeing what else is going on around you. Most people are truly incapable of that. If some, somebody gets right in their face, boy, they, they really don't see what's going on around them. So I want to take a certain posture that minimizes my first thing I'm looking at him. What am I looking for? Uh -huh. Right. The weapons platform of the human body. Does he has he a lethal threat right now? Uh, keep track of those hands. And I want to look around while I begin to turn. I turn the situation 90 degrees is one of my rules of thumb also, unless it'll put me in an untenable place. Why? Because by turning that situation, he has to respond to me. And I'm now looking in my peripheral vision as I turn at 90 degrees, I've seen almost 360 around me. As we talk a little more, I'll spin it a little more. Oh. Talk now I'm, I'm assessing what's around me. What are threats? What are potential assets? Is there anybody that looks like they might be helpful uh, in the situation? Is there a law enforcement officer present or an authority figure I might appeal to to, to defuse this? Uh, 
what weapons could be picked up and used against me. If I don't have weapons, what could I pick up and use? But I need first to have that reflex built in that gets my hands up in a non-threatening way, but up here where I can use them quickly to cover my vitals uh, into body and up to head. So that's a, a pre-planned response for an unexpected stimulus. And I think, can you think of any other situations that you might have pre-planned responses to startlement, uh, unexpected response, uh, stimuli? Well, I guess my classic one is if I come out of a store and I, I always check the walls, you know, as I come out, I check right, check left down the walls and look for someone that's just waiting for someone to come out of the store. Sure. And if there's somebody there and they change their behavior because I suddenly appear. Uh, yes. Yep. All right. That's my first cue. And then I try to do something at that point to see if I get a second change in their behavior. Like if I alter my path, if they alter their pathway a second time to try to continue in a line that's going to put them in contact with me. Of course, yep. if you notice it quickly enough, the best thing to do is turn around and go back in the store. Sure. Um, if it, like I've gotten, gotten out to the parking lot and someone all of a sudden gets out of a car and starts towards me, I may uh, immediately circle around the car to see if they change and circle. What I'm trying to do then is, is really to, to define the situation and mm -hmm. make it less ambiguous. Exactly. Yeah. And because of that point, I've got someone who is attempting they're, they're trying to make contact with me. Mm -hmm. And that's a difference between it's just two people past each other walking down the sidewalk. Yep. I summarize that. I say anybody that initiates or modifies their behavior based on something I do, that person needs assessed. Right. I, I need to conduct an assessment on anyone who modifies their behavior, initiates or modifies based uh -huh. on my actions. Um, anybody that starts doing anything based on my movements, we need to spend enough attention on them to assess what that's about. Most often it's benign, but it may not be. Yeah. Um, it, there's just a difference between, you know, you're doing the head nod, hey, how you doing as you pass people sure. and people who are trying to interview you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I just, I personally try to, I bring, try to bring that to a clarifying point as quickly as I can in sure. a position that's in my advantage. Sure. A, yeah. a really important tool you said, I believe there as well, movement. Movement is mm -hmm. what confirms that undue interest in many situations. Uh, another, uh, another kind of funny situation. As a matter of fact, you attended the NTI several times, I believe. No, uh, that, that <laughs> ended before my... Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. I, I know some of our mutual acquaintances have. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of local steakhouses uh, to where the venue of the National Tactical Invitational is what we're talking about. And one of those steakhouses was really quite famous locally, just, you know, a no name place. But the guy who ran it was a was a butcher himself that selected and cut his own meat and so on. And it was just a place we always went. So after uh, maybe it was actually during the prep for one of the NTIs, we're, we're going there for dinner and it's pretty busy. So we're having to kind of stand in the alcove and wait for our table. And there's a fella, as I look on in, I'm, I'm always looking around. And as I look in, there's a fella that appears to be showing me undue interest. And I, I look away and as I look back, yeah, he's still still looking at me and I talk a little bit and I keep track in the corner of my eye. I know he's not approaching, but, and I look back at him and yeah, he's, and he's staring at me. And this I, several times, and now not only is he staring at me, but he, he appears to be getting 
not really agitated, but unhappy. He appears to be less and less happy to see me uh, there in that place. And I can't figure out who the guy is. But I look around and no, he's staring at me. He's staring right at me. Well, about that time, the hostess comes and says she has a table for us and invites us to step on through the door. And I think, well, I'm going to walk pretty much right past this guy. We'll, we'll see what's going on here. And as I begin to approach him, I realize his eyes are not tracking me. His eyes are still fixated back to where they were when he was staring at me. So I glance over my shoulder and we were, had been just in this alcove outside a doorway. And when I glance back above the door above the, the top of the door flush mounted into the wall was a television set and there was a basketball game on <laughs> and i'm guessing that this man's team was not performing very well that night as he was getting more and more irritated as he looked at that tv which was about a foot over my head i was sure he was staring at me the whole time but my movement confirmed or in this case confirmed that he was not showing undue interest in me and uh, that's probably the most graphic situation but i've had similar things happen once or twice where you think somebody's giving you the stink eye or just showing too much interest and then when you move on you find oh no they're, they're watching that person behind me so yeah movement is key you know that the sports thing brings up something that was, uh, and this is going to seem silly just to a lot of people. I have quit for the most part wearing anything with any kind of logos, uh, sports out in public mm -hmm. because it invites people to say things to you that they wouldn't ordinarily otherwise say. Right. It's like if they see you wearing the logo of their rival team or whatever. And it's like, it invites them to, to interact with you. Sure. And that's sometimes their opinion. Yeah. Their differing opinion, not only their opinion, but what they right. are sure is a differing opinion. So right, right off the bat, uh, you have set up some degree of conflict, even if it's right. not a personal. All right. And, and then that can sometimes become points of honor or yep. an emotions takeover. And you know, it's funny. I was on an airplane once. I boarded, and I, I attended the University of Georgia for one of my degrees. Mm -hmm. I don't care what the sports team from the University of Georgia did. I spent too much time working sporting events there and dealing with the people that attend to have any affection left for them. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting on a plane, and apparently Alabama had beaten Georgia in some game uh -huh. the day prior, and we we're in. In some cities, nowhere near Alabama or Georgia. Mm -hmm. I'm getting on a plane, and this guy just as he comes on the plane, he's wearing an Alabama T-shirt, and he starts yelling to everyone on the plane about how Alabama trained those dogs again. Uh huh. Yeah. And I was so <laughs> thankful that I was not wearing anything not. Mm -hmm. indicate because I know what would happen is sure. that the way this guy was acting, he would have looked at me, mm -hmm. and I would have become the target. Yep, absolutely. Of of. And you know, when I tell people that, as I'm sure you have as well, it's not super uncommon for somebody to say, well, doggone it, I'm not going to run around scared all the time. I'm going to, I'm going to wear whatever the heck I want. And I'm going to proclaim my, you, you have that right. Absolutely have that right. And it's, it's, to me, it's not about being scared. Um, I'm yeah. not scared of a lot of folks, right. but the fact of the matter is I don't need or want negative encounters. And there's, there's no good outcomes, particularly this day and age. 
at the worst, you, or at the best, you have a situation that raises your blood pressure and causes you to have to be hypervigilant for a period of time. And, uh, and that's at the best. In the worst case, it, it devolves into some use of force. And uh, there now you've got to deal with the potential of your injury or his injury and lawsuits and legal actions. And to me, it's, it's not about, uh, it's not about exercising your rights. It's, you know, that kind of, kind of similar to open carry. I'm, uh, you know, I get folks who come into class open carrying and they want to argue about open carry. And I just say it to me, it's absolutely tactically unsound. Well, I'm making a statement. I go, I don't, I don't care you're going to make it. Yeah, you're making a statement. It may not be I, the one you I, intended. but I'm sure you're going to make a political <laughs> statement. That's not the purpose of my firearm. You know, that's another thing I teach in class from the very first class. I have some defensive maxims. And, and one of mine is that the purpose of my defensive firearm is to save human life. Mm-hmm. There's a period after that statement. That is a complete sentence. You could say the only purpose of my defensive firearm is to save human life. It's not to save my dog's life or being attacked by another dog. It's not to save myself from embarrassment. It certainly is not to enforce my will or, or uh, enlarge my ego. It has a one purpose, and that purpose is to save human life. If it isn't doing that, it belongs in the holster, and nobody needs to know it's there. It's not there to make a political statement. It, well, you have the right. I have the right to do so. Sure you do. And if you want to exercise that right, you go right ahead. I choose not to. I choose to live tactically. Yeah. And, you know, we can take this, what I was talking about with the sports memorabilia a little further. If you're wearing political statements on your clothing. Indeed. You are inviting people to respond to that. Yep. Now, you perfectly you have the right to do it. You are initiating a conversation. Right. If you're wearing a political statement, you're initiating a conversation. Mm-hmm. Somebody may just take you up on it. Right. And I have just gotten to the point where I just don't want to engage in any of that. Exactly. And so I, I have began looking for ways of, because I, I see how all this stuff typically begins. Yeah. And so I've started looking for things that I can change just about how I go about my life. Sure. And do it. Now, I still have sports memorabilia clothing. I wear it. I wear it around the house. I wear it around the house. I wear it to a barbecue I'm hosting in my home. Yeah, you know that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. As I'm traveling from my house, say if I'm going to a ball game, I'm traveling from my house to the stadium. I'll wear a shirt with nothing over it, over the shirt that has the logo or something on it. And as I arrive at the stadium, I remove. Sure. Yep. You know, support your team. Yeah. Right. Because it's just. You know, as I think about that guy getting on the airplane, I don't want to end up in a fight on the airplane over somebody screaming about two football teams. Exactly. You know, that's just not conducive yep. to good living. And that's just managing. That's, you know, as we were talking about, that's managing those situations in advance. Right. You know, on the, on the tactic side of it, another thing that's, you know, near and dear, or, or I shouldn't say it that way, another thing that is on people's minds in terms of preparation and less since COVID and we're not seeing as many and we're not hearing as much about active shooter situations, but that's another one that I ask people to think about. And it's, it's amazing how many situations people jump to, I just shoot him. Well, first you have to identify him. You have to have your gun in hand. You have to have your sights on target, et cetera, et cetera. So I ask people if you were, and I have some videos, there's a, 
you can find video of a shooting that's in for my neck of the woods. It's the Cascade Outlet Mall in, uh, in where is that? Bellingham, Burlington, one of the two, Washington. Um, if you look up Cascade Mall shooting, I think you'll find the video is still online. In this case, this young man comes into us, into one of the anchor stores, one of the major stores in the mall. And in less than 60 seconds, he runs through the store and kills five people and then puts his gun down and runs out. So I ask people, and I show them the video, and I say, you know, what would that look like? What would that sound like? And that led me to exploring what, what, how do we pre-plan for that? And that starts with, again, what, what stimulus are we going to receive first? So I say that, that basically um, there's three possibilities. One, it's close enough you see it. It's right there. You see it. It's right there in front of you. He's, he's either aiming a gun at you or he's aiming a gun at somebody else. What are you doing? Uh, you need an immediate plan. What are you doing? The next is that you don't see it, but you can hear it. You're close enough. You can hear gunshots, repeated gunshots there. You're there in the mall. What are you doing? The third case is you can neither see it nor hear it but you see or hear the effects of it. What does that mean? People are streaming past you, yelling about it. Uh, you see injured people. Um, so you're, you're learning about it secondhand, so to speak. Again, what are your actions? Now, specific actions, well, that depends on a lot of things. Do you have, are you, are you by yourself? Do you have loved ones with you? Are they immediately with you or are they in the direction that the gunfire is coming from? Do you feel compelled that you have to move that direction to secure a loved one, that sort of thing? And then we can get into, now we get into what vocabulary do you have? What about the geometry of tactics? Do you know what tools do you have that you can use in that situation? Um, to then carry out the course of action. But a couple of things I point out to people is that in, in almost every mall, in between those anchor stores, the major stores at the corners, pretty much all of the smaller stores in most malls, there's a service hallway that runs the full length of that wing of the mall. That's how they bring product in and garbage out and so on. In the back of that little store, no matter what it is, a um, little specialty store, there's a storeroom that opens out into that corridor. That door is most often not locked due to fire code. Uh, even if it is locked, is it, is it breachable um, with a good strong kick? And or when you turn to somebody working there and say, my God, there's a shooter out there. Let's get out of here. Open, the, open this door so we can get out. Let's get out the back way. Um, if I'm there with my family, that's where we're going. I'm grabbing them and we're going through back into the back of that store, looking for the entrance to the storeroom. The one that says employees only, you're going through that. You're then looking for the sign that says exit. You're going into that, sir. I'm going into that service hallway and we're making our way out of there. Uh, that's my plan. If my family is with me, um, obviously if my family is in the direction of the gunfire and out of sight, then I have to employ other skills and, uh, and, and move toward that sound of gunfire. But that's the type of thinking that I, I believe we need to do to be prepared for these situations. What's it really look like? How do you, how do you get from the situation? Even if you are going to employ deadly force in almost every situation, I, I teach a, a course here in Washington state that is state certification for armed private security, um, 
private investigators and bail bond recovery agents. And there's a portion of that. There are 13 scenarios that were required to discuss uh, with the student. And according to the state curriculum, that all the student needs to do is identify, is this a shoot or a no shoot? And I say, no, no, that, that's not what we're going to do. What we're going to do is I'm going to read you this scenario and you're going to tell me what would you do? And they start telling me all a bunch of reasons why and I say, stop, stop. What would you do? It's happening right now. It's in front of you. It's right now in front of you. Do something. What are you doing? Well, because no, no, there's no time for that. I shoot it. Your gun's in your holster. It's underneath your clothing. He's how far away. You can't just shoot him. Well, I'd, I'd move. Oh, okay. Now we're talking. You're going to move. Where are you moving? I'm moving to the first thing that's cover or concealment. Even if my intent is to shoot him, I'm moving to cover or concealment while I execute my presentation and get the weapon in hand. Now, if I've already identified who the threat is, how much of him do I need to see? Only enough to shoot it. I don't need to see his eyeballs. As I see his eyeballs, he can see my eyeballs. If I can see an edge of him, I'm going to start poking holes in his edge. Oh, but John, that's not, not a vital area. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, it'll certainly sort out how motivated he is. <laughs> I put a couple of rounds through his elbow. or some, Now, I'm not saying you shoot to wound or anything like that. I'm saying if I have good cover, I'm not stepping out in the middle of it. I did a scenario with a lot of law enforcement training where there's a bad guy down the hall. He's shooting. It's an active shooter situation. And they're standing there behind cover. And I get up in their ear and I say, you know, he's killing people. Are you going to do something? They're kind of like, well, I don't know what to do. There's, there's sim rounds coming down the hall every couple of seconds. I go, he's killing people. Are you going to do something? A lot of those officers would look at me and then they'd bravely step right out in the middle of the hall and take a couple of rounds. I yank them back and say, all right, let's talk about this. <laughs> all right. You know where he is. You know, he's down. Well, you said I had to do something. I said, yeah, you got to do something. You don't got to step out in the middle of the hall and give him your whole body to shoot at. Right. You pie around the corner and see if you can see a piece of him and start. Is it within your marksmanship capabilities to start picking his edges off? Um, what about you figure out where he is and wait till you hear gunfire that isn't coming your way. And then you pie out another couple inches enough to see what you need to see and shoot it. So there's a lot of nuance between nothing and I just shoot the guy and we, we have to uh, open those, those possibilities up to people. Yeah. You just brought to mind two different uh, things for me. Uh, the mall example mm -hmm. and getting out. I, I was at a venue with another and um, people tend to leave through the same entrance and exit point that they came in. Yep. Because that's and the only way they, they know they always use. the right. same one they always use. Right. Um, well, we walked into this venue, and the way the venue is arrayed, there's two rows of seats directly facing the stage, and then there's mm -hmm. two rows of, of seats like at an angle to the stage. Well, the entrance points to this room are directly behind the two rows of seats that are angled straight to the stage. Uh -huh. Well, when we went through those two doors, because that's how you got into the room, I noticed that there's a wall of glass doors over to the right. Uh -huh. Well, I went to a rearmost row on those angled rows uh -huh. and sat where I could see that row of uh, glass doors over to the right. And they said, why are we sitting here? Uh -huh. I said, because everybody else is walking through those doors is going straight into those other two sections. If something happens in this building tonight, they're going to all go charging straight back to those two doors. We've got a whole wall we can exit. 
exactly. over here because that whole wall is glass doors. The other thing is I can see anybody approaching from here. If the trouble's coming from that direction, I can see it before it gets into the building. So it gives me a spot where I can watch what's coming and it gives me a way to escape that I'm not in that trample zone. Exactly. That's right there. And plus it opened up to the parking lot where those other doors went to an exterior hallway to another funnel point where people would have to go through another set of doors to get to the parking lot. And I said, that's two trample zones that are, that we would have to go through that way. Whereas here we can get out. Sure. And so that's why I'm sitting right here. And, you know, at this point, this, this, this other has been around me enough to know, okay, that, that's just the way it's going to be if I'm going to hang around. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, you know, yeah. and you talk about this, this scenario with the law enforcement officers you were talking about and with the security guards and stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, when, back in my days when I was an FTO, and I finally let the rookie start driving the patrol car. Okay. You know, because one, they've had to pass a locations test at this point. Well, there's the written locations test and there's my locations test. Uh-huh. And we're and riding. What, is your, what does yours consist of? Oh, we're just riding along. And all of a sudden, oh, there's a guy having a heart attack at such and such. Uh-huh. You best get there the best way possible. And That's I just would lean back in the seat and, uh-huh. you know, they're starting to panic or whatever. It's like, don't run the lights and sirens because this is a scenario, <laughs> but you got to drive me there in the best way possible. Uh-huh. And the whole time I was like, man, I hope he's got, I hope he took care of his family. I hope sure. he's got, because you're, you're sure not getting there in time. Uh-huh. And we'd be putting the whole, <laughs> and putting a little stress on him. Yep. Right. And, and uh-huh. part of that was to teach the traffic patterns. Right. And that there were alternate ways to get to places that may not be the most direct route. They are the faster. Right. fastest way to get there and it's to get them to think about if there was something breaking out at this location right now how would i get there uh-huh. and you know eventually i take was okay you drove right past this parking lot right well this parking lot has an exit on that right. other yeah. street yeah. over there sure. that we could have missed yeah we could have yeah. missed four traffic lights uh-huh yep. yep and you know and everything and gotten there that much sooner and it was part of trying to teach them how to think about where they were where they needed to get to sure yep absolutely yeah Uh, you know i uh in talking about where you chose to sit um you know i i talk about some of the tactical principles that that i also uh keep in mind and one again military terminology we talk about high speed avenues of approach what's that mean it means identify the directions that a problem could come from that could be upon you with very little time to react that might be if i'm seated right next to a doorway for example to the the kitchen for example in a restaurant well somebody could step out of the kitchen and i they're within a few feet of me, I, I wouldn't have much time to discern much about them versus looking at somebody who's walking in from the entrance where I'm going to be able to observe them for 15 or 20 seconds. So high speed avenues of approach. And we talk about observation. I want to be able to see as much as possible. And then we talk about those high speed avenues of approaches can also be high speed avenues of exits for me uh-huh. that I need to be aware of. And it's interesting. You have to balance all of those things. And I, you know, I get neophyte tacticians, as I call them, that, you know, funny, you get out in a group and the, the jockeying at the table for who's going to sit in the, in the place where they can see the best. Right. And uh, of course you and I hang out with people that it doesn't matter who's sitting where um, they're, they're going to be, you know, I tell people that the problem is you're not hanging out with the right people. 
You need to yeah. hang out with people that are at least as skilled and well as equipped as you are. They yeah, we're are probably we're, people that are better, more skilled and, and well, better equipped than I am. Um, and there's one fellow I used to do a lot of traveling with, and he was a, he was a single man and I could be sitting across from him like this at a table and his eyes are constantly moving and scanning as they should be. And then they would fixate and it would take about two seconds for me to discern. If I look over my shoulder, am I going to see a potential hazard or am I going to see a pretty lady? Uh, and I could tell from his expression about two seconds into his eyes stopping moving, whether it was neutral, whether it was a potential threat or whether it was a pretty lady over my shoulder. And I'd say to him, uh, so she's cute, huh? And he'd go, what? what? <laughs> yeah, you, you're looking at a cute girl, aren't you? Or I could look at him and say, uh, so uh, what's the dude wearing or what's that dude doing that you're watching? He goes, oh, doing this or that. Um, but how many people will also stick themselves in a corner so they can see everything? but there's no way out. There's, you know, the exits are, they're in the furthest corner, deepest into this thing. Cause nobody could get to me without me seeing them coming. Yeah, you're right. Nobody can get to you without you seeing them coming. But when you see them coming, you pretty much got to make a stand where you are because right. there aren't any other options. Yeah. There's uh, nowhere to go. Uh, we, we ate in some very safe restaurants this past week. Yes, we did. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, was that your comment or somebody else that said it would, uh, that group would make a pretty good posse? That was mine. <laughs> yeah. Was mine. yeah. Um, you know, there's one thing we need to address. What is that? Technical shooting classes are extremely easy to sell. Uh -huh. Why are, why is training for everything we've talked about tonight hard to sell? Yeah, and I'll, I'll put a little, some not exact figures on that for those of you that might doubt Lee's statement. Um, I've been in the training business to greater or lesser degrees for, for quite a few years. And one company that I used to work with in particular, we, we literally would fill dozens of shooting classes a year. We would do one to two tactics classes a year, and we always felt a big sigh of relief if they filled. So literally several dozen to one uh, was the ratio of people, of, of classes we could fill, of the interest of people, of tactics versus shooting. And I have spent a lot of time thinking about this, as I expect you have, most of us in this business have, because we know, we absolutely positively know that a good, strong, competent base of shooting level will probably be sufficient in the presence of good awareness, good tact, good strategies for personal defense and good tactics. Conversely, we know that absent that, extraordinarily high levels of shooting performance do not guarantee your safety. Uh, we, we just can't stress it enough. I can tell you from the military setting, most special forces, soldiers, Army Special Forces, Green Beret, it's, it's commonly known as where I spent about half of my career. I was most often the best marksman in the group, the, the highest trained. I trained on my own and took all kinds of classes, just like you as a law enforcement officer. Uh -huh. The rest of the people around me were what I would call competent gunmen, competent marksmen, competent shooters. But, you know, uh, SF guys very rarely lose a fight. And you know, they're only competent in their shooting skills. Why? Because of the exercise of really good tactics, awareness um, that enables our use of those tactics. So we know it's important. Your question is, why can't we, why can't we transfer? Why is it so difficult to help other people understand that? 
And, you know, all I have are opinions on it and hypotheses, but I, I think it comes down to shooting. It's easy to see where you, where you came from and where you are now. It's, e it's easily measurable. And, not, and that measurability, frankly, gives you a sense of satisfaction. I used to be able to do this thing in this amount of time from this distance. Now I can do it twice as fast from twice as far away. My skill has increased and that feels good. That feels good. And it probably gets accolades from people. And you can stand up there and most of us like a little competition and we can stand up there and, and get the uh, sense of accomplishment from that, that competition. There's nothing wrong with that except if you allow that to consume all of your resources, all of the resources of training time and funds are spent on that, you're only developing a portion of the skills that you need. And, uh, but that, that's very attractive. Conversely, learning tactics, it's, it's software. It is, uh, it's very difficult to measure. It definitely is not something that lends itself to man-on-man -man comparison. Um, it, it's hard to know if you've really made strides or not. And it, it's really, it's only satisfaction is internal. And I, I think that drives this, um, this, this situation that you've observed as well, that it's so difficult to get people to understand that really, if I have three days with you, to teach tactics, I'll probably put some shooting in there just to make it more palatable to you and more likely you'll attend. But you know what? We could spend that three days and not fire one actual round of ammunition and you would learn probably more than the extra time it takes to go to the range and work range drills into the, the teaching of tactics. Right. Uh, I tend to think that people don't attend honest to goodness tactics training because they're scared of being embarrassed. I, I believe you're correct, particularly if they know it's going to include force on force. Um, they're going to be put in a situation where, yes, the outcome is, is visible. But, but, you know, I guess maybe it comes to psychology of what's more embarrassing. Because if you're in a class where you know there's going to be some man-on-man -man competition, well, there's uh -huh. room for embarrassment there as well. Yeah. But, you know, I know I'm not supposed to beat the grandmaster that's in the class. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, you start looking at the, what the possibilities of embarrassment are. This guy's got his own company. He's out teaching and he got killed in that scenario in this class. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, I just, I see that as this, the counter argument to that would be then go get all that embarrassing stuff out of the way in a environment that, you know, you're going to be able to walk away from and leave so that hopefully that you learn things that when you're actually put to an honest to goodness, real life test, that you've got all your screwing up out of the way. Yep. Absolutely. Um, as we were having this conversation tonight, it dawned on me something that was said to us this past week. What was that? And it finally dawned on me. Let me tell the audience where we were first. Um, John and I were part of a select group that was invited to attend a private class with Larry Mudgett. Uh, Larry Mudgett is a legend, and I don't use that word lightly, a legend. And if you don't know who Mr. Mudgett is, you need to go fix yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I, somebody responded on my business page where I posted the picture. Why is he such a legend? I said, well, do I start or end with the two medals of valor? Yeah. You know, is that where I start the conversation or is that where I end it? Right. Uh, but for the purpose of what I want to bring up here 
he pointed out numerous times that he turned out academy class after academy class after academy class that won shooting medals where every cadet in the class won a medal. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there thinking from a teaching point, wow, and everything. Mm-hmm. Did you hear him talk about where they went from one year where they'd had so many officers killed you know, in the line of duty and then how that number got reduced dramatically? Mm-hmm. And I'm expecting him to say, and it was because of the improved marksmanship and everything. He says, man, our tactics guys really, really, they really got on the ball. And that good tactic training is what, what caused our guys to start winning these things and not, not going down. Uh, so, and it just now dawned on me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you hear that conversation? You no, know, I did. And I did mark it at the time. And uh, I wish now that I had brought him back around to ask him to expand on that a little bit. Um, I think I did not do so because I felt most all of us present probably already understand uh, right. that, but it's always great to hear how somebody else explains it and, and articulates it and what, what they see as the most significant portion of that. Uh, but yeah, that, that is it. You know, I talked about even in tactics that it's like vocabulary in a foreign language. The more words you know, the more conversations you can have. Well, the fact of the matter is the way I look at it, the shooting piece is just another couple pieces of that vocabulary. They're just other skills that you plug into the situation. And they, of course, dovetail into your tactics um, as well. So far from being the answer, they, they are just one of the skills that hopefully can uh, come together to bring you and your loved ones home or keep you and your loved ones safe if you're in that unavoidable situation. Right. You know, I took three quarters of German in college as my foreign language. Mm-hmm. And I never got to the point where I could listen to native German speakers mm-hmm. and follow them and understand what they were saying. But I developed enough of an understanding of the language that I could look at German in writing mm-hmm. And I could may I wouldn't be able to translate it word for word, mm-hmm. but I'd be able to get a gist of what was going on. Yep. And there was a very precise, there's a very precise structure to the German language. Uh, uh, there's one to the English language too. We just don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and by the way, folks, English is a Germanic language, yeah. um, but there's a very precise structure. Like every noun is always capitalized. Mm-hmm. All right. And you learn to look for, sometimes the verbs are split and you could learn, I would look for the capitalized word and then I'd look to see what the last word in the sentence was. Cause that would tell me if it was a verb or not. Right. And then I could figure out what was going on. And, you know, you're putting it into those examples of this. Right, first I got to learn vocabulary. Then I can start learning structure exactly. is if I start learning what takes place around me, I can begin to start putting it in place. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, you, I use language as an analogy for this all the time, but you just added another piece to it. Uh, I was, uh, was a linguist in the, in the Army to start with. I was what they now call a human intelligence collector trained in Russian. Uh, we went to Russian language school, studied nothing but Russian uh, all day uh, for almost a year. And, uh, but in order to qualify to take a language, the, the military has you take what they call a defense language aptitude battery, uh, D-Lab, and they use a totally made up language. And they tell you that, um, you know, all, uh, all masculine uh, nouns end in this ending and all 
you know, past, uh, past tense sounds like this or looks like that. And then they either ask you to read or you hear somebody say all this gobbledygook. And then they ask you, um, were they talking about a man or a woman in the present, future, or past? And what I just realized is, what are we talking about? We're talking about pattern magic, matching. We're talking about the recognition of patterns and then the matching of patterns to discern information is, uh, is a critical skill to learning languages. Well, it's also a critical skill in tactics. Uh, if you, you know, everybody knows that old saying, if you know what's normal in a situation, you can then detect abnormal. Hopefully in interacting with people, we have that same ability. Hopefully we have a lot of experiences with normal and we recognize abnormal. And uh, I don't need to know all about abnormal when I run into it as a private citizen. I just need to recognize it enough to know that I don't want to spend any more time around it than I have to and start taking action. Um, but uh, and that leads us back to, you know, mission statement again, really getting straight. You know, the, the, ta the tactical tools are the same. The application is different for military law enforcement and private citizens, but it's the same vocabulary words. And it's that same ability to recognize patterns and gather information from patterns and cause that to inform your actions and to set yourself up. As we talked about with position, prepare, perform. Well, position is to recognize the patterns. Prepare is to think about them and have your plan in place so that when it's time, you go directly to perform without having to spend a bunch of time. If we now mix metaphors, so to speak, and go to the Boyd action cycle, observe, orient, decide, act. I want to have observation, the absolute minimum of orientation necessary, no decision whatsoever, go right to act. So I have an O, O minus A loop instead of an O, O, D, A loop. Um, you know, those are the things that we can, can mentally prepare in that framework. And then you got to get out there, find somebody that truly understands individual tactics. That can be difficult sometimes. Uh, if you don't know anything about a topic, it's really hard to discern uh, whether you're getting the best information or not when you attend that first class. Uh, all I can tell you there is you probably ought to, just like shooting, attend more than one class from more than one person and really, I tell folks, really, really think about the physics of it. People can make a really good argument. You know, a simple one is, uh, oh, John, you just spent three seconds in the fatal funnel standing in front of that door. Well, um, the alternative was to rush into the room by myself and try and process the whole room all at once. Um, alternatively, I could get a posture that allowed minimum exposure while I started into that doorway and gather information as I went. Now, in some cases, one might be acceptable or, or even optimal. And, but I can tell you as a solo operator, I really don't want to rush into a situation where I haven't seen things. I can't process it fast enough. It's been proven to me time and time again. And that's, we get into the history of tactics. I was an active duty special forces guy when I first learned about simunitions. And I can tell you that that led to some real consternation. Uh, prior to that, it was real easy to have a lot of bravado to say, uh, I got all this gear and I got all this body armor and I'm a highly trained dealer of death and they pay me the big bucks to get my ass in there and solve the problem. And uh, then we got simunitions, which actually left no doubt whether you were getting shot or not and where you were getting uh -huh. shot. And we exercised some of our tactics. And at the end of it, I looked at my hands and they're all painted with colors from, uh, from getting hit with sim rounds. And I thought, where were those hands? Pretty much in line with my face. So I just got my hands 
shot to shit and probably my face. Right. I don't think my bravado is necessarily going to going to take me through. I, I I guarantee you, I understand mindset as much as anybody, and I there's no quit in me. Uh, but there's some facts here, so that caused that yeah. you know maybe we ought to find a way to do this. We don't get shot so damn much, right. and uh, that led to some changes in tactics as we went along. And a lot of folks didn't go through that, and uh, and then if you take those same tactics that maybe even work as a team and try them as a solo. And you, you learn similar things, you know, that didn't work out so well because I didn't have a number two, three or four to cover my back when I got in there and dug in that corner and doggone, I got shot a bunch. Maybe I don't want to run in there and try and figure that out. Maybe I want to figure out everything I can before I go through the door. Um, so, so, uh, you know, cause the, the common thing that happens after a talk like this is people then if they have the ability to comment, they say, well, where do I get the training and who do I, and how do I know? And, uh, all I can tell you is that, um, you know, do some shopping around, learn what you can in advance. Um, and really, if you can explore it, have they really looked at this from the point of view of, a, of, a, of a singleton, a, a lone operator, so to speak. Uh, well, and no, I'm not currently teaching this other than I teach little pieces of it at conferences like at, at TAC, uh, the tactical conference, Range Master Tactical Conference. Possibly in 22, um, I hope to maybe add a couple of, uh, of classes outside the area. I used to be a traveling trainer, uh, but uh, once I, I bought this uh, facility six years ago, I focused here. And uh, maybe in 2022, I'll, I'll get on the road and be one of your options for, for looking at tactical training. I can tell you the audience that John Herner and I successfully cornered Mr. Holston here uh, this, this past week and, and got on to him about, we want a class that's application, application, application. And so there is that conversation taking place as far as venues and content. So for all of you out there that are listening to this, that'll see it on YouTube or that will hear the podcast, one way to guarantee that the training happens is that when the links are posted you buy the tickets you sign up for them and that will encourage people like mr holston to continue to provide such product because uh, i know it, it's, it's provided the schedules work out i, I intend to be there and um because uh, i've been i've been looking forward to a class like that for a long time and i know you're a valuable source of that information uh, from all the conversations we've had from all the times i've been able to see you present in person and uh, so that's why I jumped on that opportunity to have that conversation this week. Well, and, we, uh, we'll have fun if we get to do that. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've tried, as I mentioned, TACCON a few years ago, I, I ran a, uh, a shoot house where I did something uh, first for me. I put a, I put a camera centered immediately above each target in the shoot house. And I was able to show people this is what you look like when, and when the target first saw you and when you first saw it and, uh, and when you engaged in it, and we went back. But what I realized was, you know, that was a test. That was a situation where people could test what they already knew. And um, um, I, I think it's fair to say that most of the people who went through recognized that there was room for improvement. And, oh, yeah. and why? Because they just haven't been exposed to it. And they, yeah. you know, it's not something that you just naturally know. Uh, you can figure a lot of it out on your own, but it's like everything else. With a little guidance, you'll get a lot further, a lot faster. Right. Well, John, my general wrap-up question is, is there anything about this topic tonight that I didn't ask you about that you would like to discuss? 
I don't think so. I think we've, uh, we've, we've chewed around, at least chewed around the edges of it pretty hard. And uh-huh. hopefully we've stimulated some thinking in, uh, in folks. And uh, if there's a particular area of it that people express an interest in and you'd like to dive deeper into it, I'm sure, sure we could work that out. Uh, but I think what we did today, we, uh, we hopefully gave, gave folks some things to think about. All right. Well, tell folks how they can get in touch with you and what uh, stuff you've got upcoming. Sure. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm really teaching basic classes in the uh, Pacific Northwest right now, uh, but I can be reached. Uh, my email is tbsh, that's Tom Boy Sam Hotel, tbsh, at westcoastarmorynorth.com. Got to have the north in there, westcoastarmorynorth.com. And uh, if you have any questions or would like to just discuss the, uh, the matter further, feel free to drop me a line. All right, folks, if you enjoyed this episode and previous episodes, I encourage you to uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, support the audio podcast, share the links. Uh, That's the way that's going to help the audience keep growing and that uh, leads us continuing to do this. I'm going to keep doing it as long as there's there's interest. Seems to be growing, uh, but let's let's see if we can keep it growing some more. so I've been enjoying doing the episodes because it allows me to talk to people like John and uh, we've got some interesting stuff coming up in, in future episodes. Uh, one I want to do is I want to get together our posse from this entire week and get it, get everybody all line one time. Managing all those schedules may prove difficult. Yeah, I expected Mike. Yes. Uh, that, that may prove difficult. So maybe just if I can get two or three together sure. and do, and do that. Um, I'll make myself available if at all possible. Absolutely. But uh again i'm enjoying the show so please please like and share and do all the things like that that keep it growing and they get the information in front of other people Uh, please share it only with like-minded people that have common sense there you go (laughs) that's hard on the internet i know (laughs) (laughs) well again if i can i'll put in a little plug and folks uh, there's so much content out there it is very, very difficult, particularly if you're relatively new at this, to judge the value of that content. What I can tell you is I've been in the business a long time. I've been in this pursuit, this art for a long time. And I'm lucky enough to have met some people and developed some connections along the way for folks that are, are really good, deep thinkers that have addressed the issue, both mentally and physically, uh, and can provide you with a filter that can really increase what you take away, decrease that signal to noise ratio. And uh, that Weems guy is, is definitely one of those folks. So uh, you're in the right place. Just keep coming back. Well, thank you, John. That means a lot. That, that very much means a lot. And I appreciate you for all the guidance you've, you've given me over the years. Uh, you're one of those guys that I kind of look to as like, which way is John going? Okay, that's probably the same pathway I need to be following as well. Well, I, I certainly make my stumbles along the way, but we usually figure it out. There you go. Well, uh, folks, that's going to wrap up this episode. And thank you for your time. I'm that Weems guy for first person safety.